Hello, and welcome to another episode of Clark Hill's Credit Eco to Go, Curbside Thought Leadership for Financial Services. My name is Joanne Needleman, and I am a partner at Clark Hill, as well as a member of the firm's Banking and Financial Services Practice Group. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Hillary B. Miller. Hillary is a sole attorney practitioner and statistician who practices at the intersection of law and data, principally in consumer financial services law and litigation. He represents lenders engaged in bet the company litigation, arbitrations, enforcement proceedings, and investigations. He defends complex litigation nationwide, including class actions and appeals. His clients include lenders, loan participants, and purchasers, collection agencies, private equity investors, and trade associations. Hillary is the founder and president of the Short-Term Loan Bar Association. Hillary, welcome to Credit Eco to Go. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Joanne. It's a pleasure to be here. And since, um, as you may remember, we met at the CFPB, it seems perfect that we should reconvene for this topic. That's right. That's right. And we also uh, will let the audience in that we are Peloton friends as well. We are. Very important community to be in right now. (laughs) So, Hillary, thank you for that segue, because I do think it is important. You know, your bio states you have an incredible expertise in the short-term loan industry, which is a relatively new industry, uh, also known as the payday loan industry. Can you talk a little bit about the state of the industry given not only the pandemic, but the recent rescission by the CFPB of the underwriting provisions of the payday rule? Sure, so first let me talk about uh, what I think is happening in the industry. And like many industries, the short-term credit industry is in turmoil. Um, It's extremely difficult to uh, make an accurate assessment of any borrower or loan applicant's uh, credit status in this market. And the fact that they were employed last week and have a pay stub to prove it um, is no indication or reliable indicator of their ability to be employed next week. So because this is an industry that that relies on demonstration of ability uh, to have a continuing source of income. Uh, This is a very, very challenging environment from an economic standpoint, not merely for uh, short-term lenders, but for all lenders uh, in general, obviously. Um, The good news is uh, that on July 7th, the CFPB uh, rescinded uh, the significant uh, terms of the uh, 2017 final payday rule that required underwriting and determination of borrower's ability to repay using a very complex formula that was unworkable from the standpoint of lenders and really did not serve any demonstrable purpose in terms of protecting borrowers. So at least in this difficult underwriting environment, uh, lenders have the opportunity to uh, use non-traditional underwriting techniques that might not have been sanctioned by the Bureau under the uh, 2017 rule. You know, and it's interesting, you've seen since the pandemic started, all the financial services regulators have issued guidance, and, and whatever you want to call it, I- issued of statements and guidance to financial institutions, you know, and the common theme is you really need to work with your borrowers. 
And it's so ironic that there was such a push six months ago, a year ago, to really have this very rigid, as you say, standard of ability to repay, which was completely unworkable. But now the mantra is work with them the best you can. And, and really, uh, that's what financial institutions are supposed to do. They're supposed Correct. to make individualized determinations with respect to their decisions to extend credit. And uh, now I think we are back to uh, a model that actually worked extremely well. Uh, so we'll see whether it will be a model that will see us through the, the current crisis. I, I, that's such an excellent point. You know, there's always a debate. I remember when um, there was a, some data that came out several years ago from one of the feds. It may have been the Philly Fed. It may have been the Boston Fed. I don't remember. And it was about how excessive uh, and strict regulations can really affect access to credit. And I remember sitting in a, a meeting with the Consumer Advisory Board at the CFPB, and we were talking about it. And I thought, I was like, well, there you go. <laughs> I was like, that should be a wake-up call. And everyone in the group, and there was not many industry people in that room, looked at me like I was crazy. Because they, you know, there, there is, there's conflicting opinions, uh, depending on which side of the table you do sit on, about whether access to credit is a good thing. And would you agree with that? I agree with you that, it, that there are differing opinions on this topic. Um, in general, uh, nearly everyone agrees that access to credit is a good thing. And even opponents of the payday lending industry or the short-term lending industry as it has uh, now expanded to include, to include non-payday products mm -hmm. uh, would agree with you that everyone should have access to credit. Uh, where the, where the uh, agreement breaks down is often uh, overprice and uh, over the structure of the product. But uh, I think everyone agrees that, cre that credit is a good idea. The problem, as you correctly identify, is that very frequently regulatory uh, provisions that are designed to protect consumers have the effect of reducing the attractiveness of lending to borrowers. And as a result, the supply of credit contracts. And those protections can be most frequently in the form of uh, price controls. Uh, you know, as uh, the, the law of supply and demand is, is not subject to congressional repeal. And uh, if you require a lender to make loans only at a price that's below the lender's marginal cost, uh, the uh, supply of credit will disappear very quickly. Right. That, that, that always gets lost uh, when talking about and, and arguing over regulations. <laughs> so, all right. So we now have an environment uh, where um, we will not have any kind of strict underwriting provisions. And I think you'll agree, Hillary, look, the short-term payday industry developed because traditional finance, financial institutions, and I'm not talking credit cards, but uh, you know, going into a bank and getting a loan, no bank wanted to loan you $500. That just wasn't going to happen, or $1,000, or even $1,500. Um, so there's always been a push, I don't know how, uh, serious it's been to get 
traditional banks into this space. And you will recall, it was about a month or so ago, the CFPB granted a no action letter to the Bank Policy Institute. Uh, it was actually a no action template, they call it. And it was a process, an underwriting process that I think at least the Bank Policy Institute thought would be attractive uh, to traditional financial lenders to get into the small dollar space. Do you think now with the repeal of the underwriting provisions of the payday rule and this no action letter template that banks will start to jump into this space? So a good question. Um, if I had a crystal ball, I would probably be in a different business. And, uh, <laughs> we all would, Hillary. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, will, I will tell you a few things about uh, my perception of this, uh, this business as it relates to banks. Banks are very clearly the low-cost producer of uh, consumer credit. They have the lowest cost of funds of any of the possible entrants into this market. Uh, they have existing relationships that give them panoramic views of their customers' finances. And it, it should be readily possible to have uh, either through AI or some other means, um, a very good look at every consumer with whom the borrower, uh, with whom the lender has dealt and make very good and better underwriting decisions. Uh, banks also uh, have immediate access from the standpoint of being able to use the borrower's depository account as a source of repayment of the borrower's credit. So all of the economic factors in this market favor the notion that banks should wipe out non-bank lenders in, in terms of competition. And so the question is, why has that simply not happened mm -hmm. uh, over time? And I, I think the reason is that banks really just don't want these customers. They don't look like profitable commercial banking customers um, they, they serve these customers in many cases because it satisfies uh, their Community Reinvestment Act uh, uh, diversification requirements, but these are not people who generate huge amounts of fees. They often are renters rather than uh, uh, owners of homes, and therefore there's no mortgage business the opportunity for banks to cross-sell their most profitable products along with uh, th these short-term credit products uh, seems very, very limited. I think, that's, I think that's true. I think also too, it's, yeah, they are running on thin margins. They have to answer to shareholders. And as we saw with Payday, you know, regardless of whether you're a bank or a non-bank lender, to, to underwrite at the level that you would this, as a mortgage <laughs> uh, is just the, the margins are just too slim uh, on the amounts that are being sought. And it, it's, 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 a, it's a nickel and dime <laughs> analysis, really. <laughs> it is a nickel and dime analysis. And, and I think there's the additional challenge that if banks were to decide to charge uh, enough for these products to make them truly profitable, the result would uh, would be some sort of reputational risk, that at least right. a perception of re reputational risk 
uh, for for these banks, and that's just not worth it for them. I agree. I agree. So there was a part of the payday rule that did survive, and that was the payment provision. Um, what issues do you see moving forward with that, with uh, those entities that are still in the market and doing short-term or payday loans? So as you will remember, the payday provisions of the uh, uh, payday rule, the final payday rule, uh, were uh, reaffirmed by the Bureau uh, two weeks ago in connection with the finality of the 2020 rule. Uh, so those, rule, those provisions will go into effect, but operationally they're stayed because of the pending litigation in Texas. So until that issue is resolved, there, there is an August 2020 effective date that everybody needs to be mindful of who is in the industry. But uh, until those, uh, uh, until the stay is lifted, the August 19 date uh, uh, will, will not be effective. Um, I have a couple of thoughts about the uh, payment provisions of the payday rule from a substantive standpoint. The, the, uh, regulatory purpose of the payday provisions was to protect consumers from overdraft charges to which they might be subjected as a result of multiple repetitive ACH debits to their accounts um, seeking repayment of, uh, of outstanding payday loans or other short-term credit. Uh, those overdraft charges don't exist with respect to debit cards when the, when that is the meanings of repayment that the uh, that the consumer has elected and which the borrower uh, has given to to his lender uh, there's presently pending litigation that would seek to declare the payment provisions to be arbitrary and capricious uh, to the extent that they lump debit cards in with ACH payments for which the economic consequences for the consumer are uh, completely different and clearly debit cards are not within the ambit of the particular mischief that the CFPB sought to avoid by enacting this, uh, this these payment provisions. So I think that there's a very good chance that the payment provisions will ultimately go away one way or the other. Um, but for the, for the meanwhile, it seems that lenders really do need to prepare at least for some indefinite point in the future to comply with those provisions. It's always a timing issue when it comes to implementation of rules. Right. Do you invest to get prepared only to have to sometimes see that investment go away with the changes to uh, obligations and responsibilities. So uh, thank you for that. When the payday rule first came out, um, God, <laughs> October 2017, um, given, given the makeup of what the Bureau was at the time, uh, where the agency was headed, many lenders kind of, and the scrutiny obviously with, with, with the traditional payday model, a lot of lenders moved away because the payday rule did not uncover installment loans. Um, do you see 
that trend still happening as lenders, do you see lenders moving away from the traditional payday, which is the lump sum being repaid, you know, within what, 30 to 45 days, I think was the limit and, and opting more for the, you know, a little bit higher balances, but spread out over a longer period of time. So this is, uh, this is actually an interesting topic and it is one on which uh, both the industry and consumerists should have been able to agree. And that is that neither consumers nor lenders in this market want loans that are repayable in two weeks. Two weeks isn't long enough for the consumer. Um, and uh, two weeks is too short for the lender to recover its origination costs. So uh, it, is, it is no secret that that in the research that the Bureau relied on in enacting the 2017 rule, um, that one of the findings was most consumers actually expect to roll over their loans several times in order to have credit for the duration that they want. So by moving to installment loans, not only do lenders find themselves making loans where they have a longer opportunity to recover their origination costs, and establish and maintain relationships with the consumers. But also the consumers find these loans easier to repay and more suited to their cash flows. So I would expect that that tradition uh, that we've been established in the last two years or three years to continue. I, I would agree with that. Um, really fascinating. So we've seen in the last couple, at the end of June, um, we had an interesting decision from the Supreme Court regarding the structure of the single director at the CFPB. And uh, I think it, it lays out a lot of scenarios uh, moving forward, especially with an election coming up. And as you and I both know, payday was a, was a high priority for, prior, uh, for the prior director and uh, Cordray. And when Mul uh, acting director Mulvaney came in, that priority shifted. Um, do you think that payday, if there is a new director, if there is a change in, in, in the executive administration and a, and a new director is hired, uh, do you think payday will be on that priority list? It certainly would not be surprising. Yeah. Um, and uh, when the Bureau was first stood up in 2010, um, I predicted that payday would be the low-hanging fruit that would be gone within the first 90 days after the Bureau started operating. So I was completely wrong about that, and I could be wrong again. But uh, I am sure it will be on the list. The question is where it will be in the priorities for the, for the new director, if there is one. Um, the Bureau will have to go through formal uh, notice and comment rulemaking. And that will take some time. Uh, and as we know from the Supreme Court's recent uh, news, there's some slightly enhanced standard for trying to set aside an existing rule that wouldn't exist uh, with simply the making of a new rule. So we'll, we'll see how this goes. That's right, that's right. Well, thank you, Hillary. Um, this is really important. Lending is going to be very important uh, in the next several years, uh, especially in, with an economy that's that's in a downturn. So I think th these are great discussions, and I would love to continue this discussion uh, in the future as we see the industry start to change a little bit. So again, thank you so much for your time. Uh, in 
as I mentioned to you in preparing for this, at Credit Eco to Go, we, we ask all of our guests two questions. And in keeping with our to-go theme, um, I, I want to ask you about uh, whether you had a favorite takeout experience while you were sheltering in place. You're, you're in D.C., which is a wonderful restaurant destination uh, and has gotten better in the last 10 years, that is for sure. So do you have an experience that you'd like to share with us? So I'd like to, to mention two things about this. The, the first is that um, one of the teachings of the recent COVID-19 experience is that takeout is not the same as in restaurant dining. And many of the things that made uh, having a special meal out at a special restaurant um, turn out not to be portable. Um, among other things that when you're in a restaurant, it's kind of like having a massage. It's like the waiter is there to take care of you. And there's no one taking care of you at home, except maybe yourself and your spouse, if you're lucky. Right. Um, on the other hand, uh, we've had some amazing experiences with, for want of a better term, faster food restaurants. Um, my favorite restaurant is uh, for fast food takeout is Firewalk in Potomac, mm -hmm. Maryland. Mm -hmm. um, from which we can get delivery in about 15 minutes flat and the food is always hot and it's amazing. Um, so I recommend that to you and your audience. That's great. Thank you. And, and you're absolutely right. It's been, we're, we're, uh, we are big out to dinner people. And that's the one thing that I have really missed during uh these last several months. And that, that was really our social life was to go out to dinner. We went out a lot and, and I do miss that. And, but, you know, it's interesting to see how restaurants have gotten creative with their takeout and trying to pivot their, you know, experiences of an in-person as opposed to a takeout. Some have done, but done it better than others. And I'm happy to hear that uh, a restaurant that you do like has been able to pivot uh, and you've been able to enjoy uh, what they have to offer. So that's great. Um, Finally, uh, Hillary, what we also like to do here at Credit Eco to Go is ask if you could, uh, we will make a small donation on your behalf to a local food bank in your area or a charity that is helping restaurant workers who may be displaced or have lost their jobs uh, because of the shutdown. So can you tell us about an organization that you have chosen? So um, I'm a big fan of Interfaith Works in Rockville, Maryland, which provides a number of services to uh, people who are in distress in the community. And that includes uh, housing for over 600 people who would otherwise be homeless, job training, and meals. Um, among other things, uh, they have a women's shelter to whom, uh, and, and at which they provide over 300 meals a day. And we think this is wonderful work. And, would be very grateful if you would support it. Uh, excellent choice, and we are happy to do it. So, Hillary, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. Um, as I said, the need for small dollar lending by consumers is not going to go away, and I suspect the tug of war between industry and regulators will continue, especially uh, as we talked about after the election, if there is a change in administration. And thank you uh, for all for all of you for listening today to Credit Eco to Go. More information about any of our podcasts and future podcasts, please go to my bio page at clarkhill.com or to my LinkedIn page. All episodes of Credit Eco to Go can be found on Buzzsprout and Spotify. 
If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have ideas for future show topics, please email us at creditecotogo at clarkhill.com. Thank you, be well, and stay safe. This podcast is intended for general education and informational purposes only and should not be regarded as either legal advice or a legal opinion. You should not act upon or use this publication or any of its contents for any specific situation. Recipients are cautioned to obtain legal advice from their legal counsel with respect to any decision or course of action contemplated in a specific situation. Clark Hill PLC and its attorneys provide legal advice only after establishing an attorney-client relationship through a written attorney-client engagement agreement. This recording does not establish an attorney-client relationship with any recipient.